You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to www.3cr.org.au. I fell into a burning ring of fire. I went down, 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 and the flames went higher. And it burns, 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 the ring of fire, the ring of fire. Yes, welcome to the new year, uh, Uprise Radio listeners and 3CR listeners more broadly. I'm Jackson McInerney, this is Uprise Radio, and perhaps that was a little tasteless to play that song on the intro, but it's just so unavoidable. You walk outside and the air is toxic all around you. Um, I just want to start by paying my respects to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation who have struggled and continue to struggle for sovereignty never ceded and self-determination. Look, it's really fair to say that the summer of 2019-20 has been one long, hot, crazy summer, and it's only mid-January. Things in Australia have taken a pretty savage turn. A ravaged crescent runs along the eastern seaboard, some kind of sick counterpart to the fertile crescent across the other side of the world where things are also heating up in different ways. I mean, everybody already knows, all of our listeners, I mean, already ravaged by bushfire as early as June this year, New South Wales was you know seriously on fire by mid-December and Victoria ablaze by New Year's. It's fair to say the first 20 months, sorry, the first months of 2020 were characterized by horrific loss of life and property, fear on a grand scale and forced movement. And the body count's significant. There's 29 dead <clears throat> as we broadcast today. Initially, the estimates were that 500 million animals had died. I saw today on Wikipedia this estimation has been updated to one billion animals you know which is and that's not including insects i mean if you write the numbers out either 500 million or 1 billion it's, it beggars belief that the the loss at this scale and i think it's fair to say that i honestly don't know how to react to these events especially when so many have struggled for so long uh to warn and prompt drastic change the drastic change that's needed to address our rapidly changing climate. I thought earlier this week that 3CR's Nikki Stott on Earth Matters uh, really captured the feeling well, and I wanted to play you a few of her thoughts. This is Nikki Stott, and thanks to Earth Matters for the audio. Here we are in Colony Australia, still on fire. And it's not a surprise. We've been predicting it for a very long time. We were acutely aware that it was coming, and here we are. From the profound tragedy of the burning of Tarania Creek to the absurdist theatre of Eden locals crying over their woodchip mill and everything in between. And as mainstream white Australia finally starts to grasp, whether directly or indirectly, what it means to be a refugee, one thing I know is that all of you Earth Matters listeners in our grassroots activist communities out there will understand what I mean when I say that I have struggled to know where to begin with covering these fires. The sheer scale, the overwhelming magnitude of it all. These fires have been a long time coming 250 years coming, 
And as we watch all our worst fears and predictions manifest in real time, the ongoing colonial folly and hubris is growing larger and more out of control than the actual fires. That was Nikki Stott on Earth Matters earlier this week, or on Sunday, I should say. Uh, you're listening to 3CR. This is Uprise Radio. You know, that last line about colonial folly and hubris being more out of control than the fires is so spot on. I mean, even their own dark prophets, the liberal economists, have predicted this. But the tin ears of our spineless leaders were deaf even to their proclamations. One Ross Garneau predicted as early as 2008 that climate change would, among other things, lead to longer bushfire seasons, more severe, that would start earlier, finish later. Garneau predicted this would be observable by, you guessed it, 2020. The Morrison government has consistently failed to provide a plan to deal with environmental catastrophe. Instead, and somewhat predictably, Morrison used the tragic circumstances to call for greater power for his office and the ability to deploy the defence forces within Australia with less red tape. The prospect of the military being an adequate response to climate change is a frightening one. It's reactive at best and draconian at worst. It's not the first time on this program that we've pondered that if a worsening environment is going to be a justification for military deployment, be prepared for some enviro-adventurism from military powers in the near future. In today's world of spin, you can quite easily imagine the Indonesian government opening a new mine in Irian Jaya while suggesting they're sending troops to protect rainforest. The evacuation of Malakuta residents from Far East and Victoria using military vessels, look, it made for great media theatre, but one couldn't help but think of the billions directed towards questionably valuable submarines and supersonic death machine jets while real investment in renewable energy. Imagine, driven by government to the level they embrace military spending, look, it remains conspicuously absent from dialogue or, heaven forbid, policy. After traipsing off to Hawaii while the country burned, Scotty from Marketing finally returned to give an interview to David Spears on the ABC, where he deliberately avoided linking the catastrophe with anthropogenic climate change, calling for those extra powers of, pl- of troop deployment. You can have a listen to him here. Well, I think we've got to prepare for a new normal. And the new normal, I think there is a community expectation now that there'd be a more direct uh, ability for the, the Commonwealth, particularly through the Australian Defence Forces, to be able to take action. See, what happened last that? Saturday, this was the change, the big change, historic change. It moved from a respond to request posture to a move and integrate posture, which means the Defence Force moving in and then coming in and working with the local effort without request um, without, without any instigation at, at a state level. You now, still need state permission to do that, though. Well, we are acting under what I'd call a very uh, agreeable environment, but mm. these arrangements have pushed, I think, the constitutional authorities for us to act to its very edge, and that's why people talk about this being something you can just do. I mean, we, we required the authority of their Governor-General and that we received very clear legal advice before taking the step. You so, had to take constitutional advice on that. Of course we did. Mm. I mean, this requires the call-out of reservists and the CDF, Chief of the Defence Force, actually putting people into zones and disaster areas. You so have the power to deploy defence assets when you think you need to. Where, where, the, where the Chief of the Defence Force believes there's a risk to, to life and, and safety and, and, and can 
can support but state we're talking about state-run national parks and so on aren't we to mm. deploy them well, into. we're talking about the state crown land we're talking mm. about any area we're talking about any area so this is really about the ability to deploy troops with more ease scomo went on to say that people i'm not sure who he's quoting but people believe this is something you should just be able to do deploy the military without having to you know, go through all the rigmarole of seeking approval from the Governor-General, you know. It's just really takes up precious time when you could have boots on the ground. Later, Morrison, while defending the dark arts economics of counting previous carbon reductions as so-called credits to cover our failure to meet the current Paris targets, he makes it abundantly clear that his outlook is that climate change is inevitable because true economic reform is unthinkable to his mind. Instead, we're just going to have to learn to adapt and survive. It has to be done in the acknowledgement, not to seek an answer to, but in the acknowledgement of the, the, the climate we now live in and how, that, and how climate change has affected that. That is not an issue of dispute. That is an issue of acknowledgement. This head-in-the-sand refusal to see the writing on the wall, the smoke in the urban leaves, the protests in the city streets, the white-bleached coral and the never-ending drought, the inability to take some good old conservative responsibility is proof positive that it's not through rigorous inquiry or community sentiment reflection that the Liberal National Coalition gets its climate change policy or complete lack thereof. It's from vested interests and the sheer weight of those trillions of tonnes of fossil fuels tracking out of Newcastle and Hay Point Port and Botany Point and Port Hedland the colonial and capitalist mentalities cannot even contemplate or comprehend leaving those resources, even if their extradition and consumption means global catastrophe, which it assuredly does. You know, a snapshot of the political rhetoric can be easily taken from the deputy leader and former deputy leader of the coalition government. Earlier, at the outset of the fires, Former Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce suggested two of the first bushfire casualties found dead in their homes in New South Wales were, quote, probably Greens voters. The current Deputy Leader Michael McCorback suggested believing climate change was responsible for the fires was just a preoccupation for urban latte-sipping greenies. Nationals MP George Christensen blamed arson exclusively, while Pauline Hanson, independent I <coughs> idiot, bemoaned the inaccurate daily weather forecast and then called for prioritising energy prices over human survival on a habitable planet. Of course, we've seen how energy prices have responded so well since Abbott scrapped the Gillard carbon tax, a policy that actually disincentivised business from destroying the planet. Thousands of homes have been destroyed across Australia's two most densely populated states, but thankfully we can all be reassured that the Canberra bubble must be on the verge of bursting. I mean, it's toxic inside. The air quality in Canberra, Australia's exotic remote capital hit rock bottom, at one stage the worst in the world. Just this week, Melbourne took over that onerous title. There's been a real sense of melancholy around when you walk the streets, if you're willing to brave the toxic air. And when you tune into, you know, fellow community radio stations like PBS and Triple R here in Melbourne, the tone of the music has certainly been low-key for, you know, what is midsummer. I think a lot of people are really struggling uh, with how to react to what's happened, uh, myself included. I have to say that you know, I was lucky enough, me and my partner welcomed our first daughter into the world late last year in, uh, in early November. 
But as the uh, oxytocin cushion began to sag, you really begin to wonder what type of world you've brought the poor wee soul into. Um, you know, the last few days she's been having difficulty sleeping and, uh, you know, for the air that she's breathing. And I found uh, this particular song uh, is a good one to chill her out. This is um, uh, Babylon by one of her tricks, Point Never, uh, with Sandy Gray in support, I think.
Yeah, you are tuned in to 3CR. My name is Jackson. This is Uprise Radio, and that was Babylon by One of Tricks Point Never. Just a bit maudlin, been reflecting on the bushfires and the complete lack of response from the lack of preparation, lack of response from our dear leaders. I mean, you can't really take it out of the context of what's going on around the world at the moment as well. You've got people all around the world, young people, all different people, crying out for a systemic reaction to climate change. And meanwhile, the central villain, like in some old Hollywood film in this drama, is making his last stand. Oil, that modern master of the fossil fuels, maker and breaker of nations since 1945, is cozying up to a cache of US-bought rifles in his desert hideout, lady naming his guns and preparing for a Ned Kelly exit from the promised land. January has seen a severe ratcheting up of international relations that could yet lead to a major conflict, one based at the centre of the world's guilty energy supply. You look at what's been happening in Iran with the assassination of General Salemi and uh, the, I suppose, um, proportional response of the Iranians until it was revealed they had inadvertently shot down a Ukrainian passenger jet carrying 175-odd you know, innocence, you know, as far as we know. I mean, it, you know, things are on a knife's edge. Iran is one of the biggest suppliers of oil to a world market still incredibly, insatiably hungry for it. I mean, even though the future surely necessarily must be based off new forms of cheap energy, you can't underappreciate the current role of oil and Iran's strategic significance in controlling access to uh, you know the um, the Gulf, uh, Gulf oil, and you know the the war in Yemen, which uh, you know can, uh, is about access to the Suez Canal through the Gulf of Aden. You know you've got China, who are a very close ally of Iran in the region. Uh, they are relying on Iran as a key staging point for their Belt and Road Initiative, that will enable them to get more and more of their goods into uh, Eastern and Western Europe through the Middle East. You know, this massive road and rail network that they are supporting other governments to build, you know, and one of the ways they're supporting Iran is by buying huge amounts of Iranian oil, you know, much to the chagrin of the US who have, you know, since Trump came into power, slapped economic sanctions back on Iran. It was kind of Trump's first aggressive move towards the Iranian regime after the, um, you know, significant agreement that Obama signed um, the plan of action to, um, in which Iran agreed to give up uh, the ability for it to develop nuclear weapons in exchange for the uh, relief from super draconian sanctions that have been on place on the regime since the Islamic Revolution there. You know, so you've got China still desperate for Iran's oil. They're the world's biggest consumer and importer of oil, despite their own booming solar and battery storage industries. You think about the tremendous amounts of oil used in making the paints and plastics and taints and scents and threads for late-stage consumer capitalism, you know, and then all of that needs to get shipped back across. So, you know, China needs a stable Iran, you know, so they have been uh, very measured in their response you know, they have actually condemned the U.S. action uh, while, you know, being somewhat measured in the, in, in the Iranian response. I mean, the reports were that Iran did actually warn Iraq and subsequently the U.S. about the uh, shots on the Al-Ain 
and other air base in the south of Iraq where US uh, troops were stationed. So they gave them a chance to, to get out, which is why there were no casualties uh, in, those, in those air bases. Um, fascinatingly, you know, a big part of stability in the region has been the tremendous amounts of U.S. soldiers in terms of, you know, Iran, you know, trying to get access to more oil in Iraq. I mean, the, the current government in Iraq is, is Iran-friendly, is Tehran-friendly. And they have, in response to the killing of also one of their major generals at the same time of uh, 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 Salemi, uh, they've made a pronouncement. They're going to, you know, eject all of the uh, U.S. soldiers from Iran. Uh, they haven't really given... Uh, from Iraq, I should say, sorry. They haven't really given any timelines for this. Uh, but, you know, those tensions really threaten the U.S. occupation, uh, which could, you know, have some huge consequences. It's really kind of worth looking into the responses to these actions from other world powers, like the statements from Germany and the statements from from China, uh, you know, because we get such a myopic view here in Australia through the mainstream press. We really just get told what... Um, you know, what the U.S. are doing and their justification for it. It's no surprise, of course, that the same four countries that uh, led the cheerleaders as they illegally invaded Iraq, Australia, the U.S., the U.K., and Canada, are once again the voices uh, calling for a military presence around Iran, surrounding Iran. And Australia has already sent a warship um, to the Strait of Ormuz last week, the um, HMAS Toowoomba, I believe it's called, you know, 200 sailors and a huge armaments to, you know, uh, project stability in the region, as they say. But yeah, it's been, um, as we know, this is this is our longest war that we, we barely hear about in Iraq, and maybe perhaps that theatre is going to expand. Uh, I think you've got to stay, you know, a little bit upbeat. I'm trying to, I must say, it's, 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 it's challenging at the moment. But um, uh, I've been enjoying uh, this song by... Uh, by Melbourne band Cable Ties. It's their new, it's their new uh, single. It's called Sandcastle, and it's a good one to get you feeling a bit upbeat again.
Joseph Toscana, convener of the Tanaminawaya Mount Bohina Commemorations. See you midday this Monday, 25th January, corner of Franklin and Victoria Street, Melbourne, at the Tanaminawaya Mount Monument to commemorate Tanaminawaya Mount Putirana, Traganini, Planobina, and those others, tens of thousands of men, women, and children who died defending their lands, their cultures, this Monday, the 20th of January. Can't make the first hour of the ceremony, 12 to 1? Broadcast live on Community Radio 3CR, 3cr.org.au. The Setting Sun Film Festival in Melbourne's West is calling for entries until 31st of January. Enter your short or feature film into our international festival with the cult following and see your film screen at Yarraville's Art Deco Sun Theatre in May. The festival runs for seven days and features a culturally diverse program that includes Australia's first female filmmakers program and a wide range of categories and genres. Lots of prizes to win, all details on our website settingsun.com.au The Setting Sun Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. You have been listening to Uprise Radio. My name is Jackson. You're tuned into 3CR. James should be back for our next show in a fortnight's time. Or actually, three weeks' time. No, fortnight's time. Sometimes there's five weeks in the month. I get a bit confused. James has been on a tour in the States. It'll be interesting to chat with him about the mood over there with this continued US aggression. And we might chat a bit more about the situation in Iran, get someone in to talk about that. Uh, thanks heaps for listening today. It's going to go out uh, with some Archie Roach and Ruby Hunter. Uh, live at the wireless, this is Charcoal Lane. Side by side, we walk along to the end. Gertrude Street and tarpaulin master for a quart of wine thick or thin right or wrong in the cold and in the heat we'd cross over Smith Street to the end of the line To take away the pain Trying to keep it down As it first went around In charcoal lane Spinning yarns and telling jokes Now the wine is tasting good Cause it's getting closer You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.